Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have John Seratsky, co-founder of Character and the best-selling co-author of Sprint, how to solve big problems and test new ideas in just five days. In this episode, we talked about John's time at Google Ventures and how they helped hundreds of early-stage startups find product market fit using Design Sprints. John then talked about how they first came up with the idea for Design Sprints and why they followed on to develop the process further and productize it into a book. We then went over the different stages of a design sprint and discussed how using this model can help companies increase retention. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode. And if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. For the listeners, John is the co-founder and general partner at Character. Uh, John is also the author and co-creator of Sprint, who together with Jake Knapp and the Google Ventures team developed the design sprint process. Prior to character, John started out his career as a web intern at The Onion. He then later moved into design and held product design roles at FeedBurner, Google, and YouTube. So my first question for you, John, is what was your favorite Onion news story whilst working there? (laughs) It's pretty amazing that you went back that far. I think you have to click show more like three times on my LinkedIn to get to the point where it shows that I was an intern at The Onion. And I... When I applied for the job, I thought like, this is going to be the coolest thing ever. And not a lot of people know, but the onion started in Madison, Wisconsin, which is where the university of Wisconsin is located. It was a group of uh, graduates from university of Wisconsin who started the onion and later went on they moved to New York, became this big media company, but I thought it was going to be like, so cool. And what I was actually doing was just copying and pasting articles from an old CMS to a new CMS. And this was in 2003 or 2004. So it's pretty bad. It was like pretty rudimentary. But the coolest thing was actually getting to go back to the very, very beginning of the onion. Because even by that point, the onion was essentially how it is today. It's just like very smart, cynical kind of satire about current events and, and whatever. But but going back to some of the original, the very first issues of the onion, I, I, those are some of my favorite stories. And I, I remember that the, the very first ver- edition of the onion, the story was about a sea monster, like the Loch Ness monster that came out of the lake called Lake Mendota near the campus, near the university. And it's, so the headline was Mendota monster malls, Madison. And it was so cheesy. It had this, it was like black and white. It had this like 
clearly photoshopped image of this like sea monster coming out of the water. And I just remember thinking like, that's so cool that the onion started with this crappy, like dumb story about this sea monster. And 10 years later, however many years later, it was like this incredibly sophisticated, like respected, well-known media brand. So that was a super long answer to your question, but that was my favorite story. The very first one. See, it's a great answer. And I think it's very representative of most like ways businesses and things like podcasts or books or anything get started is that just like nothing's going to be perfect from day one. Like just yeah, do something. The first version is like yeah, almost yeah. embarrassing. Exactly. Just get it out there and then fix it, make it better, improve. That's super cool. Yeah, actually like The Onion myself as well, I first discovered it probably like 2005, 2006 and really, really enjoyed like the satire. I haven't seen it lately. I'm not sure what they're doing today, but it was really interesting back then. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So obviously I mentioned in the intro as well, the co-author and co-creator of Sprint, I think incredibly successful book and design a process as well that's carried out by pretty much uh, every, I think, uh, successful startup these days at some point. Um Maybe you can talk us through us a little bit like uh, coming from the background at GV and then how did you first develop uh, the idea and decide, okay, like we need to put this together as a process and uh, put it out there? Yeah. So you mentioned this a little bit, but before joining GV, I was in like normal product design roles. So this was in, you know, 2000, really like 2005 through 2010. So the industry was not as mature. So the roles were not as well-defined, but basically effectively the same thing that you would imagine as a product designer today, like working with PMs, working with engineers, figuring out what should the product do? What features do we need? Making sketches and wireframes and mock-ups and prototypes and testing things or whatever. Um, and I had this really cool opportunity to join Google Ventures when the firm was pretty young. It had just started in 2009. I joined in 2011. And they were basically like, we want to provide some something really unique to the founders that we invest in. We want to provide the type of support that no other VC can provide because we're connected to Google. So let's, we're going to have engineers, we're going to have marketers, designers, Google, people from Google who are going to be available to work with the startups. And so I was one of the people they recruited to do that. And it was a really cool opportunity as a really unique idea at the time. And so at first I just go and show up. One of our founders would say, or sorry, one of our investors would say, Hey, I invested in this, in this cool company. I think maybe you could help them out. So you know, I would go with some of my teammates and we would just hang around and talk to the, the team and say, hey, what's, what are you guys working on? And we would do a lot of design work. I remember one of the first projects was, was for Retail Me Not. I don't know if you know that site. Yep. It's like a coupon website. Yeah. GV invested in it and they were doing this big redesign and we just took over the redesign. We just took it over and ran with it. We did something similar for Foundation Medicine, which is this company that makes uh, cancer diagnostics, so cancer tests. So totally different kind of company, but they were designing the test report. It was a kind of a new kind of test, so it was challenging to communicate the results of the test, but we we're like, hey, we know how to design stuff. Let us just do this. And so that was our initial approach and it worked really well, but it wasn't scalable at all. And GV now is huge, even at the time was pretty big and it was growing rapidly. And we were investing in companies way more quickly than we could support them as designers. So even within the first six months, 12 months, I joined GV, we were like, this is not going to scale. Like we're going to need to do something different, but we didn't just want to shift into sort of like advice mode. We didn't just want to like have office hours and provide feedback and that sort of thing. We wanted to still really do design. We'd been looking around and, and we were friends with Jake Knapp, who was also been a designer at Google. And he had started to run these things called design sprints. And he had um, basically been inspired by hackathons and by some of the 
the you know, design thinking innovations that were coming out of the D school, some other stuff. And he had basically carved out this job for himself at Google, where he would go to a new team when they were starting something new. Like he worked with Google Chrome when Chrome was new. He worked on Google Meet. Like the, the first version of Google Meet was designed in a design sprint. He worked with X. He worked with a bunch of these teams who were like inside of Google, but at very early stages and would run these design sprints. And we were like, that seems like a really interesting approach that we could use with our portfolio companies. So we recruited Jake to join GV. He joined in 2012. And then we basically made the design sprint, our, our engagement model, our method, and we tuned it over the years, working with almost every week, working with a company in a design sprint, not only focused on helping that company, but trying to make the, the process itself better, make the method itself better. And I think the thing that we eventually really honed in on is that when you're building something new or you're making kind of high stakes changes to an existing product, you want to make sure that you're spending your time on things that are going to work and on the parts of the work that are going to matter. And especially when you're at a venture backed startup, you only have finite time to do that. You have a certain amount of runway. You got to figure things out before you run out of money. And so we began to see that with the design sprint, that was a way for us to really accelerate that process of answering those key questions of getting closer to product market fit, do that with a team in a matter of days or weeks instead of weeks or months, and just really accelerate the process or the progress that those teams were making by bringing everything that we knew about design and packaging it into this like repeatable template and checklist that we could run over and over with companies. That's very cool. Uh, and interesting to hear the different stories we tell me not and uh, like coming into a company because you wouldn't expect like they would receive investments and then have a, a full on design force behind them afterwards doing a redesign of their product. And also like that was going to be one of my questions as well as coming in as a designer working at uh, GV. Was it more of a part-time thing while you're still at Google or was it fully vested? But it sounds like you're pretty much fully vested at GV and working on all those different companies as you went out. Yeah, that was one of the things that was so unique about it is that GV, the people who started GV, they wanted this to be a real differentiator. And so as part of that, they, people like me that they brought onto the team from Google, they made us full-time, they made us partners. They, you know, gave us carry in the funds. It was a pretty unique model at the time that really allowed us to be super aligned with the companies that we're working with. And, and we really had this incentive. We had this vested interest in helping our companies be as successful as possible, as opposed to if we had still been full-time at Google, it might be like, this is fun. This is interesting, but fundamentally it doesn't affect my bottom line if this startup succeeds or fails. But when it truly did, when, you know, my future compensation depends on the success of a company, Makes I think, difference. you know, that motivated me to just be much scrappier and, and more intentional about the ways that I was working with them. Nice. When did uh, GV launch uh, its first fund? Because I- 2009. 2009. Yeah. I was going to say, I have like yeah. vague memories of being at a tech crunch event in Berlin and listening to one of the partners at the time uh, yeah. talking about the model and launching. So really interesting. Yeah. 2009. And then I think the first like European fund was like 2012, 2013, something like that. But yeah, started 2009 and then brought in the first, essentially like operating partners, people like me, we had design partners, engineering partners, marketing partners, brought in the first set of those people in 2011 and then grew from there. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the process itself then. Yeah. So it gave us a little bit of the background, how you uh, came about it to understand like the need you're needing to serve more and more companies. You wanted to be able to get to those answers faster to find sort of product market fit or find uh, the challenges. How did you go about productizing it then and getting it into a format that was easily repeatable with others? Give us a little bit of an oversteps. 
Yeah, I think everybody on the team brought something different or brought a different set of experiences. And so one of the key ideas that we got from our partner, Braden Coetz, who uh, was with us at GV and has since gone on to, to start a company called Range and now works at Stripe, was the idea of story-centric design, being very oriented around a customer journey or customer experience. So that's that directly influenced what we do on the first day of a design sprint, which is we make a map literally like a, a process, you know, flow diagram of who's the customer, who are the, the different customers or different people who interact with the product or the company? What are the basic steps that they go through? And, and then what are they working toward? What is the outcome or the result that they're working toward? And that becomes the, the skeleton that we build a lot of the rest of the sprint on. So by grounding in that map, uh, which a lot of companies don't have, that's crazy. Like they might have a, a more of a flow chart diagram, or they might have, certainly they're going to have like wireframes and mockups and things, but a lot of companies like have never actually taken the time to think about, okay, big picture, like how do customers find us? What is their first experience with us? What are the basic steps that they go through as they interact with the product and what are they trying to achieve? And so once you have that, then you can do things like you can look for problems. You can say, hey, this is a place where either qualitatively or quantitatively, we know we're losing people or people are getting tripped up. And then and then we use that map as a way to basically identify the target or the focus for the rest of the sprint. I can give you you know, example from, from working with Slack. We, d- we did several design sprints with Slack. And it was when they were basically, we're at a moment where they had been really successful signing up other tech companies. So they're early adopters, but they had not yet really tapped kind of the broader enterprise market. And so the, the, the purpose of the design sprint was to figure out like, how do we expand product market fit to not just serve other tech companies who already intrinsically get what it's like to use this chat-based product, but law firms and newspaper editorial offices and accounting firms and big companies that maybe have never used a tool like this before. We mapped out how does somebody learn about Slack? How do they get started? How do they, what's the onboarding? And basically identified in that flow, there was this really critical moment just before somebody signed up for Slack and tried it for the first time where they, it was easy to sell them on the benefits, 40% less email, be more connected with your team. All these things like really were very compelling benefits. But for somebody again, who had never used a product like this, there was this critical moment of what is it actually like? What does it actually feel like or look like or mean for me to use this product with my team? And it was especially tricky because there's no way to kick the tires as like in single player mode, right? Like you, you need to have your teammate with you. And so the purpose, once we had mapped that out and once we had identified that key moment, then the rest of the sprint, we could focus on that moment. So that's where it starts. And, and I, I promise the rest of the explanation will be much faster, but, but making a map of that problem space, identifying the, the most critical area we can focus on. Um, on Tuesday, the second day of a sprint is focused on idea generation. And the big insight here is that if you give people enough support and enough of a structure, um, sketching on paper is actually a really good way to gather input and gather ideas from everybody on the team. And this was something that I think Jake mostly brought to the table that he had experimented with a lot at Google that was really successful. So everybody contributes their own suggestions, basically saying for that key moment we identified on Monday, what do we think we should do? What should we build? What should we test? What should we try that we think is going to help us be successful? Capture those ideas as sketches on Tuesday. Wednesday 
is, is all about deciding which of those sketches to move forward with. Which of these do we think are the most promising? Which do we think are the most likely to work based on everything we know so far? And we had all experienced the pain of trying to make decisions in groups, big group meetings where you're trying to make a decision. And I had been geeking out on some of the behavioral science around decision-making and predictably irrational books like that, the, the understanding like bias and, and why people make bad decisions or, or don't make ideal decisions, especially in group settings. So Wednesday, the whole day is a structured series of exercises to make sure that we're selecting the most promising ideas that we sketched on Tuesday. Thursday is prototyping day. So that's where we're taking that most promising idea that came from a sketch and we're creating essentially a facade of it, a version of it that is realistic looking enough that a customer is going to believe it's real, but isn't functional. But we're taking a whole bunch of shortcuts. It's like the Wizard of Oz where it's this very elaborate sort of illusion, but behind the scenes, somebody's pulling the strings and the levers and making it appear real. So we do that on Thursday, which then sets us up for probably the most important part of the whole sprint, which is running a customer test on Friday. So we, rec we recruit five customers who all fit a specific profile that is germane to that target that we selected. So in this, in the case of Slack, we look for five different customers who would be a buyer of Slack at a non-tech company of a certain size, that initial customer profile. And then we show them the prototype and we take them through this experience, this illusion of what do you think of this? What are you, what, what's your reaction to what you're seeing? What barriers do you imagine if you were to sign up for this? What questions would you have? And that basically allows us to answer a lot of the questions that we have. Like fundamentally, is this approach working? If it is working, we can keep moving forward. We can refine it. We can eventually get to a point where we have an MVP, something that we can launch and start to gather quantitative data. But if it's not working, we've only wasted five days on it and we can go back to the beginning and we can run another sprint. We can use a different approach. We can try different ideas. But so those are the, the five key steps, map, sketch, decide, prototype, and test. Nice. I want to go back to the first step map. And you mentioned quite rightly, like most companies don't have some of the basics in place. And in the context of a sprint, you really need to have those basics, those fundamentals for everything else to work out and make sense as well at the end of the day. Because ultimately, if you're making assumptions based off of untrue facts or demographics, it's going to lead you down the wrong path. How do you approach that with companies going in where they don't have clear understanding yet? They don't have the user journeys mapped out. They don't have the clear pain points and understanding. What are some of the exercises you'd want to typically see companies run before diving into sprint? One of our philosophies with the design sprint is that teams know more than they think they know. We've seen again and again, and at this point we've run sprints with over 200 companies. And generally speaking, the teams already have most of the knowledge that they need to solve the problems that they're working on. They just don't have the right structures to do it. So we tend to, our focus is, is on creating those structures, creating those processes collaboratively for people to contribute and, and capture and share what they already know over like going and doing a bunch of other research or gathering a bunch of other data. That said, sometimes they just truly don't know. And sometimes like if we're doing a sprint that's focused on retention, maybe nobody has really taken the time to, to dig into the data. Maybe nobody has really taken the time to go and run a series of interviews with with customers who did churn, or on the other hand, on the, the super satisfied, super engaged customers. We sort of suss that out when we're planning the sprint, but I think like 
in most cases, if you're a team that's living and breathing this every day, and, and if you're customer centric, and if you're like, if you're in the work, if you're actually doing it and building things, and if you care about what you're doing, you're probably going to have a lot of that stuff either like in your head already or like at your fingertips. And a big part of why we run sprints is to really create a structure to bring that stuff out. But I would say that when it's, if that's not the case, probably the key things that are usually missing are like, again, just like having a handle on the usage data or having lack of that real qualitative sense of how are our customers thinking and feeling and what are they doing at these various stages of the journey? Those are the kind of the key inputs that we need. Yeah, I think as you alluded to it, those are if a company is really customer centric and they really are doing the work and trying to understand the customers, they pretty much have the base knowledge they need. The the other thing I wanted you mentioned, uh, if we're working on a sprint on retention, and maybe we can bring it like really direct to the podcast, to the show. Do you have any example maybe you could share with us of a step-by-step process where you ran sprint to help reduce retention for a specific company? And what were some of the challenges faced there? Jogging yeah. back the memory now. Yeah. I'm trying to think. There's a couple examples that come to mind that are not perfect. I don't know. A, a lot of the examples that are coming to mind are actually about activation, which I think is it's like the metaphor of a leaky bucket. You know what I mean? If the bucket's got holes in the bottom. It doesn't matter how much water you you pour in. So oftentimes we will start by focusing on making sure that activation is working really well so that we've got the right customers coming in at the beginning. We've got them engaging with the product in a way that really serves their goals, really sets them up for success. And that I think then has downstream benefits where it makes them less likely to churn. It makes them more likely to be satisfied and engaged. And one example that, that comes to mind is some work we did with Pocket, the sort of read it later app. And that was a case where they had a really good understanding of the quantitative factors that would indicate activation and long-term retention. There was the, the the founder and CEO, Nate Weiner. And then there was a sort of a, I don't even know what his title was, but Jonathan Bruck, who, who helped build Pocket and, and is now with uh, Long Journey Ventures. Both of those guys, they just really understood like, if a user does these three things, then they're going to, they're going to be activated and they're going to stick around. And they had gone through the data and they analyzed it and they knew that was like the magic three things, but they didn't know how to get people to do those three things. It was like, sometimes users would just do them. And then that was good. That was a predictor of retention, but they didn't have in their onboarding, they didn't have a really intentional designed experience that, that kind of walked those people into doing those three things. So that became the focus there was like, okay, how do we create onboarding that, that makes sure that, and I forget exactly what they were, but they were like saving some number of articles and installing the app in two locations or something like that. It was like, so how do we get users? How do we make sure that users do that? And so I think that's, that's the focus that, that we usually took was like, let's go upstream from where the problem is and make sure that we're, we're setting ourselves up for, for success rather than trying to patch over or put on a bandaid after the case. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that as well, because this is something we talk a lot about on the show, but it's something I think like people approaching general attention for the first time, the immediate response is to think, okay, let me go interview a bunch of people that have left and see what I can do to keep those people from retaining. And more often than not, it always just really comes back to a bad onboarding experience and really not activating uh, your users effectively. And the other side of it is focusing on activation, the results compound over time. It just each cohort, you're retaining more customers, you're retaining more revenue. So 
the investments and the time spent is much, much better off like really focusing on like how can we get people to successful state rather than how can we avoid people going to the unsuccessful state because the answer is more likely focus on the, getting them to the success in the start. Yeah. yeah. Nice. And then maybe talk to us a little bit about character now. What's the idea there? Obviously, you've taken some learnings uh, from Google Ventures from your experience with Sprint. What's the plan? I spent about six years at Google Ventures and worked with about 150 startups while I was there. Got to work with, I mentioned Slack, got to work with Uber, Gusto, Flatiron Health, Digit, 23andMe, a bunch of companies that have, have been super successful and really got to a point where I felt I felt like our approach to, to helping companies answer those key questions around product market fit with design sprints, just really felt like it was working super well. And we had decided to build a brand around that methodology. And so that was what led us to write the book, which came out in 2016, and to do a bunch of speaking and writing and creating public resources, because we thought that it was not just a useful way to support startups after investment, but it was a reason for startup founders to want to raise money from us in the first place. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just this benefit after, it was really a carrot uh, that would attract people to us. And so did that at GV, learned a ton, decided to leave for a couple of reasons. Mostly I just needed a break. And so took some time off, took a, a bit of a sabbatical, but also because GV had started to move later and later stage as the fund got bigger and bigger. It's just harder to deploy. If you want to write $20 million checks, it's hard to do that at a, a seed or, or A or even series B stage in a lot of cases. So they're moving later and later stage where I think the types of fundamental product and go-to-market questions that we answer with design sprints are, they're more resolved. Those questions are becoming more and more nuanced. They're not as fundamental. So left continued to do this kind of work and worked with a bunch of different kinds of companies. I started to um, explore working with larger companies, doing sort of the corporate consulting route, realized I didn't like that, did you know angel investing and one-off projects, but realized I didn't love that either because it was always, it was like, the alignment wasn't there. It wasn't either I was an angel and I was investing a pretty small amount or I was a consultant. So there was always this conversation about budget and timeline and contracts and expectations and all that stuff. And at the same time, I still loved the work. So the core of the work of really supporting startup founders and, and early teams was still what I loved to do. And so just basically I was looking for a way to put those pieces together that would allow me to do the work I wanted to do, but also really give something founder, give founders something that they really needed. And I just felt like with all the new kinds of accelerators and new funds and new types of support and resources that exist for, for founders, they kind of all been like around the, the edges. It was like this donut hole that was like, but the product and how you go to market, like how you talk to your customers, like how come more people aren't helping with that? It's great that we're helping with fundraising or with like strategy or with hiring or like all these other things. But like the thing that matters the most, the thing at the core of any startup is like, what product are you building? Who is it for? How are you reaching those people? How are you engaging them? How are you helping them be successful? And so that just kind of became my North Star. And so that's really what we're focused on with character. It's a seed stage fund. So we're investing usually in kind of the first or second round of, of funding for a company. And it's basically the, it's the GV model, but like 
hyper-focused. We're, we're writing checks, we're investing early, we're partnering very deeply, we're running design sprints. We're also, we've developed a couple other variations of the sprint method. So we have opportunity sprints, brand sprints, name sprints that we can use to help companies with a range of different critical high stakes questions that they have. But yeah, we're just trying to help founders with that thing that the, the most tricky and the most important, which also happens to overlap really nicely with the thing that we love to do and the thing that we have a lot of experience with. So it feels like a, a really good fit. We raised about 30 million, closed that officially at the end of 2021. We've invested in seven companies so far with one more that's going to be signing any day now. And over the next couple of years, we'll probably invest in a total of, of 15 to 25 companies. And we, we believe because we did this work at GV, we know how it scales and we know how it feels when it scales. We think that's a number of companies that we can support through this model over the next few years. And then hopefully, you know, that'll all work well. We'll raise another fund. We'll do it again. We'll decide how we want to scale if we want to scale, but, but yeah, that's the plan. Exciting stuff. And I can definitely see where you're alluding to as well when it comes to accelerators and things like that. Like having previously gone through two accelerators, actually, like it almost just feels going through accelerators is a focus on trying to raise funding and get a pitch deck in order uh, and less about the actual business behind it and uh, the product that's going to support it or drive it. Uh, so I definitely see that being a huge value add on that end. Cool. I want to ask one question that I ask every guest that joins the show. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now that you join a new company, churner retention is not doing well at this company. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey, John, we really need to turn things around. We have 90 days to do it. You're in charge. What do you do? The catch is you're not going to tell me I'm going to go and speak to customers and figure out the biggest pain points and start there. What you're going to do is just pick something that you've seen be effective in the past at a previous company and run with that playbook, hoping blindly that it works. <laughs> That's a super tough question. One thing that generally works, but doesn't always scale, but I'm going to, I'm going to throw it out there because I think it may be a little bit different than some other answers you've gotten to this question is if I had to blindly do something, I would blindly implement a consultative onboarding for at least a segment of, of new customers, assuming that it's like B2B SaaS, you know, or something kind of broadly in that category. And what I mean by that is an onboarding or sort of a new customer experience where there's a human from the team involved. So it's not just self-sign up. It's actually, you know, somebody from the team is involved in talking with the customer. And that's, it's a trick to get around your, your requirement that I can't say we're going to go talk to customers, but I think that it's, it's basically the reason I think it works so well is that it allows you to, to not only learn from customers in the flow in real time, but it also I think allows you to, to prototype a lot of things. It allows you to try a lot of things in this sort of non-scalable, very hands-on, but very high fidelity and very high bandwidth type of way. So you can try different approaches. What if we talk about it this way versus that way? You don't have to redesign the, the, the screens and build them and make sure you fix all the bugs. You can just literally have a conversation a different way, a different day, and you can see what happens. So I think that would probably improve, improve retention again, in the ways that we were talking about earlier, which is focusing on the top of funnel, focusing on activation. I think you'd probably get more satisfied, more activated, more engaged customers, but I think you'd also have a really powerful way to learn by, by being in the flow and talking with customers, but also being able to, to 
prototype and try a bunch of different approaches at, as you learn. Nice. You hacked your way to a good answer there, I think. What's one thing that today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? I think that I wish that I understood when I was earlier in my career that most, well, not most, customers don't think about or care about our products as much as we do, which probably sounds obvious, but but I think it's really important because I've constantly been surprised by just how how much we have to do as product designers and and as builders to keep people satisfied, to keep customers engaged and happy. And that usually means that there needs to be very frequent, very high touch, very, very high impact, valuable engagement between the product and the customer. And I think when I think back to some of my earlier experiences, for example, working at FeedBurner, which was a set of tools for web publishers, and we had analytics tools and advertising tools. I I remember thinking like, oh, people are going to want to log in and check their stats every day because that's interesting. Or people don't need to log in to to look at the product because it's set it and forget it. How great is that? That's convenient. But the reality is if if there's not a routine or a habit, there's not a loop, if there's not touch points or engagement points for people to engage with with the product, they tend to forget about it. They tend to not value it as much. They tend to to disengage and they become at at risk for churn. And so I think from, and I, I talk about this pretty much in every single conversation with founders, whether we've invested or not, it's what is the specific hook, not just the first time, but on an ongoing basis that like gets your customers engaged. Are you emailing them every day? Are you like, like, generating a report for them? Are you, is there a habit that you're building? What are you doing to, to, to keep people in the loop? And I think that's a thing that, that I just didn't have a really clear understanding of earlier in my career, but it ha- has become clear over the last you know, five, five to seven years. Nice. Yep. You heard it um, from John. People don't care about your product as much as you think they do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice. Uh, it's been a pleasure chatting to you today, John. Is there any Final thought you want to leave the listeners with anything they need to be aware of, like how can they keep up to speed with your work? Sure. Yeah. I'm very findable on Twitter and LinkedIn. Those are probably the best ways to follow me. I think my my parting thoughts or, or parting message is that a lot of the focus on churn and retention is very quantitative. And you mentioned this, Andrew, it's the benchmarks of where should we be and coming at it really from this downstream end of like, let's look at the numbers and figure out how we can juice the numbers and tweak them and get, get them to be better. But it's looking at numbers only is if you're crossing the street, it's like only looking one way and you need to look both ways. And the other way really is the qualitative side of it. And I think it's one of the, one of the habits or routines of really successful teams is that they are always talking to their customers and they're doing it in a very structured way. So they're segmenting out different categories, not personas or demographic, but, but behavioral profiles of this is a customer who's in this situation. This is a customer who's in this situation, talking to a couple of those people every week and capturing what they learn and what they say in a structured format so that they can keep a pulse that it doesn't replace the quantitative, but serves as a really helpful complement. So it's basically the numbers are showing you what people are doing. Hopefully your interviews and your qualitative researcher telling you why they're doing it. And I think that's super important because it, it tends to point the way to solutions. It points the way toward things that you can try, experiments you can run, things you can prototype. Those are my, my parting thoughts, but yeah, would love to, to connect with people, LinkedIn, Twitter, character.vc. And thanks again for, for having me on the show. 
It's a pleasure. And I love that final thoughts. It's actually uh, part of the reason why I left Hotjar to found my new company, Avrio, was really, I uh, was heading up business intelligence uh, for Hotjar, analytics and data side, all about the numbers. And really like a lot of the value as well then is on the qualitative side. And they were very big on, you need to have the what and the why to really get the full picture. And uh, something we're trying to do to help our customers with today is bring them both together and bring two sides. So I think it's a shame, like most companies today, they really have on one end, they'll have their data analytics team doing some work and the other end they'll have UX and user research on the other side. And very rarely do they actually work together to like really produce insights that matter and give you the what or the why. I liked the analogy of just crossing the road and only looking one way, but uh, very cool. Well, it's a pleasure having you today, John, and I wish you best of luck now with the fun going forward and uh, whatever 22 brings to you. All right. Thanks. Same to you. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.